Hello from my home in North Carolina. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the How Dentists Get Paid podcast, which is part two of two in the Demographics in Dentistry series. In the last episode, we discussed the changing age and gender composition of the dentist workforce and how that's going to affect the total supply of dental labor available to consumers or patients. We also began talking about the demand side. I mentioned how our country is urbanizing, and we started on what this means for dentistry. If the consumers of dentistry are moving to urban areas, where are the providers of dental care moving? The answer is also to those urban areas, and in fact at a higher rate than is necessary. Many coastal and urban areas are increasingly saturated with dentists, as you probably know putting downward pressure on compensation and increasing competition for patients. On the flip side, rural and ex-urban areas are losing dentists at a rapid clip, leaving many behind with inadequate access to dental care, even those who can afford it. I gave the first of three reasons why I think this imbalance is occurring, which is, number one, the increasing bifurcation in culture between urban and rural areas, like the splitting of cultures. There is more and more urban-centered and non-urban-centered culture. I think in a lot of ways this mirrors the political spectrum, but certainly not in all cases. But kind of like the political spectrum, it's becoming more and more polarized. Therefore, dentists, technically to their detriment, um, are oversaturated in certain urban or suburban areas which cater to their cultural preferences, and I guess only to their financial detriment, because it's a decision that's made between culture and finances. Think about a place like New York City. You've got some of the absolute best food of every ethnicity, every, every cuisine. You have some of the most renowned operas, ballets, orchestras, comedians, entertainers, everything. To gain access to that, my thought is that dentists make a trade-off between competitive environment and cultural environment. Now let's look at the other two reasons why I think saturation is happening in urban environments, and then we'll get down to business and touch on the money side of things. Enjoy the show! Another huge factor in pushing dentists to urban or suburban areas, I think, is the introduction of children to the mix. Okay, so where am I going with this? Our public education system is crumbling in a lot of places. In rural areas, the flight of residents to more populated areas has completely undercut the property tax base, which funds local public schools, in, in this country at least. Extremely low teacher salaries provide little incentive for teachers who we should remember are professionals educated often at the graduate level and maybe preferring urban areas, a little incentive for them to move to the area. In contrast, in urban and suburban areas in particular where property values are exploding, like in suburbs of Raleigh, North Carolina, there is more than enough money for properly funded public schools. And if you look closely, you'll see a vibrant mix of public school options like French or Chinese language immersion elementary schools, science and technology magnet schools, and even more. And these are all publicly funded. There's also something I've talked about earlier, uh, I think in the robots and dentistry episode, which is that our economy and therefore our society and our culture are increasingly winner-take-all. As we transition away from physical goods manufacturing to a service and digital economy, the most skilled knowledge workers are incredibly productive in economic terms, and there's less and less room for anyone other than the best. With something physical, you build one thing, and that one thing can only be had by that, you know, some one person. With a digital and service economy, services like software can be scaled across the globe, so you only need one. 
A great example of this is software. So once a website, service, app, or whatever is built, it can effectively be scaled globally very easily. That means around the world, whoever can make the best apps or services gets all the business. To some extent, obviously, there's still room for competition. So we're competing globally. And only those individuals in those industries which can compete globally can survive. So what does that mean? That means our cities are filled with globally competitive knowledge workers. And our suburban and urban schools are filled with the children of those high-powered workers, uh, which those high-powered workers love. Dr. John wants his kid to go to school with the children of lawyers, bankers, engineers, doctors, etc. Those families can afford the private music lessons from a young age, academic and test prep tutoring, and athletic club fees. The children are going to be given everything they need to succeed. And those well-prepared children are going to be excellent students providing a great learning environment. Where you're brought up matters a lot for how you turn out. And these families know that. And of course, to have all this happen, Dr. John and his family needs to move to a school district with those types of families. That's something that's not completely true for every country. So this means educated, high-earning families are geographically concentrated. And that's not a bug, that's a feature. So I grew up in a suburb of Baltimore, about 25 minutes from downtown, and then a 50-minute drive to D.C., with no traffic, obviously. The largest employer in Maryland at that time, and it still might be, was the NSA. And there were a lot of government jobs, which require federal government jobs, which required, you know, some level of education, even at a graduate level. So that coupled with all the other federal jobs was a big driver of the massive popularity of my area and I think Maryland in general. Uh, my dad bought our new house, if I remember correctly, for around, I think, $400,000 and then sold it about seven years later, once I was in college, for double that. The price doubled. The reason was the school system. Maryland has some of the best public schools in the nation. My neighborhood in particular was filled with Korean, Chinese, and Indian immigrant families with advanced degrees, all pushing their kids to succeed as much as possible. You know, there's another discussion on the ethics of that, you know, and kind of um, taking away the childhood of, of, you know, young people and making them uh, succeed and driving them in this way. But that's out of the scope of this episode. Anyway, because of this demand to live in the area, in this area with the high SAT scores and all this stuff, housing prices rose. The property tax base for our high school shot up. And we could afford to hire teachers with master's degrees and industry experience. My AP bio teacher um, had worked in an industry lab doing research on, on, what was it? I think it was restoring viability of sperm in men who uh, were paralyzed from the waist down or something like that. And it was through regeneration of some parts of the, the spine. Um, so these you know, educated industry professionals, they view teaching as a viable career, as a viable alternative because it pays well. Um, and therefore, the schools increase in quality and quality of education. So education is the second big reason, in my mind, explaining oversaturation of dentists in certain areas, and specifically the tying of the funding of your local, you know, high schools to the property tax base. Here's one more thing. Just like our economy is increasingly winner-take-all, so are our romantic lives. So this is the third reason. 
educated professional men are increasingly marrying their intellectual and socioeconomic equals. Academic John Goldthorpe of Oxford put it this way, quote, if you go back to the 1960s, you would have a big gender difference. The nurse marrying the surgeon, the businessman marrying the secretary. But over the past 20 years, women have caught up with men in the proportion going into higher education. They're going to college in their mating years, and therefore universities are becoming big mating factories, unquote. Okay, so the language there, big mating factories, is a little bit odd, but I think the point stands very well. According to that logic, dentists are much more likely to marry someone within their socioeconomic bracket now as opposed to 20 years ago. And somebody in their socioeconomic bracket probably has a career of his or her own. And like most white-collar professional careers, the best and the most jobs are concentrated around cities. Dentists have incredible geographic flexibility with regard to where to practice. That's one of the major reasons I chose to pursue dentistry. Though in college I thought I wanted to be in San Francisco or New York or Seattle, I realized just how low my quality of life was there, at least in New York, and how there are so many vibrant yet really affordable places in the U.S. that fly under the radar. So many cool cities in the Midwest and the South, Asheville, North Carolina, Columbus, Ohio, I could go on and on. But a corporate lawyer might be shackled to major or secondary cities. An aerospace engineer, for example, might need to live close to Boeing manufacturing cities in Seattle or Charleston, South Carolina. The dentist, on the other hand, might face more competition and lower earning potential, but can still make an excellent living by all accounts anywhere in the U.S. Given that flexibility, it makes complete sense to me that the decision-making unit of dentist plus spouse together would have a strong need to stay close to urban or at least suburban areas. I think these three factors explain pretty well the oversaturation of certain coastal and urban markets in the U.S. for dentists. There is a lot of economic opportunity, as well as a lot of people who need dental care and can pay for it in areas of the country farther away from major population centers. This show is called How Dentists Get Paid, so let's bring it down to the bottom line. The significance of everything I just talked about is that there is huge economic opportunity for dentists who are willing to practice outside suburban areas, in ex-urban areas, or rural areas. But how does this work out or make sense if many educated professionals are moving out of those areas? So let's examine the variables. One is that dentists who are highly educated are drawn to cities for all the reasons I just discussed. The other is that educated and higher income non-dentists are drawn to cities for jobs and personal reasons, for cultural reasons. These two variables can produce two different possible outcomes. The first is that the massive buying power of professionals allows for much greater opportunity for dentists to sell more comprehensive and higher end cosmetic dentistry and other more expensive procedures. The other outcome is that dentists, as educated people, are drawn to cities for personal and cultural reasons to the extent that the number of patients per dentist is not as favorable as it once was where they used to live. In other words, dentists are not just following the money and not just following the consumers and the patients, but also participating in the cultural shift themselves to their detriment, financial detriment, to some extent. So to clarify, the first is that 
the demand kind of outstrips or outweighs the supply. So dentists are moving to satisfy that demand. And the second is that the demand is moving, but the supply is moving way more. The supply of dental labor is moving, and that's because it's not just following the demand. It's also for cultural reasons. These two outcomes are not necessarily mutually exclusive. In highly saturated areas like California and New York City, it's true the incredible wealth allows for a small number of extremely talented dentists to establish themselves and increase earnings exponentially. At the same time, for dentists who are not able to distinguish themselves or who are doing bread and butter dentistry or who are just starting out in their careers, the relative glut of dentists contributes to lower salaries, less leverage over insurance companies, and the growth of corporate dentistry. Because if you decrease the price of labor, you're going to empower the corporations that employ that labor. That's basic economics. So consider Dr. Appa, APA. He's a celebrity dentist who has worked on high-power individuals in his offices in New York City, Los Angeles, and Dubai. He operates and he occupies at the top of the market, charging $70,000 for veneers. Okay, that's crazy. But people are very willing to pay that. He's working on movie stars and, and people who are going to be seen by millions of other people. And this kind of contributes even more to what I was talking about, the winner-take-all economy. You know, uh, Hollywood can reach that many more people with the digitization of everything. And with the internet, one movie can be seen across the world. Now you've got 6 billion consumers, potential consumers. So the reach of that one actor or one actress and the reach of his or her smile goes all around. So the best actor is going to get more and more of the work. And for that reason, there's an increasing you know, push towards perfection. You can even look at uh, look at the kind of quote-unquote, um, I don't know the right way to say it, but man hunks, you know, these days, and, and then look at uh, pictures of the old kind of heartthrobs from the 50s. I remember there was a picture of, who was it? Christopher Walken, shirtless on, um, on a magazine or something. And I think it's supposed to be, you know, considered attractive at that time, but he just looks like a normal guy today. Now you see, I mean, there's the actors have these incredible eating regimens, no carbs. They have personal trainers. A lot of times they take steroids, I mean, completely legally. Um, it's, it's extremely competitive, and that's because the best win, you know, more of it, if not all. Okay, anyway, the flip side of all this is there's a severe shortage of dentists in rural and ex-urban areas. In my research for this episode, I actually had to reconcile two notions of rural dentistry that I was finding. The first is the notion that rural dentistry can be much more lucrative than its urban counterpart, with less competition, fewer specialists, and lower overhead. The other notion is that of a dental desert, with rural residents suffering from extreme lack of dental education and care, living with toothaches and abscesses for years due to lack of dental coverage or cash funds. But that confused me because I thought, is rural dentistry economically advantageous or are the people in these rural areas unable to pay for their care? And I've seen examples of both of these. I've read many articles in the New York Times and other you know, publications about how dire the need is for access to care and for people who just are so dirt poor they cannot afford anything and they, they line up at 5 a.m. for a day of free dental care you know, in rural West Virginia. 
But I've also heard, you know, from dental students and, and on dental forums that rural dentistry can be, you know, extremely well remunerated. Okay, so what I came to understand is that the two notions are linked. It is the one which causes the other. Here's what I mean by that. First, the two variables I mentioned before are still at play here. There are dentists and there are patients, and the populations of these two groups of people are in flux. There has been huge waves of emigration from, from rural areas largely due to jobs, but also for cultural reasons. What's left often includes large groups of those who cannot or will not move, the elderly, disabled, etc. Uh, dentists also for cultural reasons, and to some extent following the out-migration from rural areas, have followed this move. The result is that there are far fewer dentists proportionally than there were in these areas. Now here's the interesting part that I think connects the two realities. You know, a lot of these places, are, they're not just desolate wastelands. They're still functioning towns or municipalities, and the vast majority of people living there do have jobs, often in factories or in areas like agriculture or, you know, working in prisons. Prisons provide a lot of jobs. The mistake I think sometimes we can make is to read that educated professionals are moving to cities or suburbs, so rural areas must be in a death spiral. You know, not all jobs or industries require education, or formal education, rather. You know, there's different types of education. Rural America absolutely has its problems, you know, the opioid epidemic, but in many areas, the economy is vibrant and the people are paid and live well. A lot of these, you know, so-called flyover states um, have uh, employment rates or unemployment rates that are extremely low, and it's because they're there are industries like uh, mining, you know, and fracking that are providing a lot of really well-paid jobs. The difference is that their jobs don't require formal education, but they're no less valuable. Uh, but as many of the educated professionals have left, there are many fewer dentists per person than there used to be because dentists are educated professionals. So the few dentists who are left can be much more selective with the sorts of patients they fill their schedules with. I think this makes it easier to run a fee-for-service practice, for example, not dealing with insurance at all or to drop insurers that are reimbursing poorly. It also makes it much easier to completely avoid Medicaid patients, I think. The result is that those dentists who stick around are in fact much better off economically, while at the same time many residents of rural areas are much worse off because dentists can be so choosy. So you see the two notions of rural America and dentistry in rural America are linked. I haven't even talked about debt repayment incentives for working in underserved areas. With combined federal and state incentives in many places, including North Carolina, where I am, a dentist can have up to $200,000 of student loans paid off over four years for working in designated health shortage areas. There are some more qualifying factors, like working at an approved site, and I won't get in into the details, but if you're interested, go to NHSC hrsa.gov. So clearly there are huge financial incentives for dentists to practice away from population centers, while there are evidently stronger cultural incentives to practice close to those centers. Those include jobs, you know, children's education, etc. I do want to just speak briefly about access to care because though this podcast is concerned with the income of dentists or things tangentially related, 
as healthcare providers, dentists do have a responsibility to alleviate suffering. I think at least that's my, my understanding as a non-dentist, but as an aspiring dentist. In one of my recent dental school interviews, I was asked about the problem with access to care and what I think could be done. I told my interviewer, I don't think the answer is to throw more money at new dentists to practice in rural areas, because like I said, there's huge financial incentive, including hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt repayment. Um, But I don't think the answer is to throw more money at new dentists to practice in those rural areas. I don't think that's sustainable. And the cultural forces seem to be just much too strong for young people to decide to live away from urban areas. Instead, my thoughts are focused on more geographically distributed economic development. What I said was that I think, frankly, we need to, on a federal level, invest far more in our communities across the nation. I think we need better infrastructure, better road systems, faster rural internet speeds, public transport, better connecting regional cities with isolated areas serviced along the way. Imagine high-speed rail connecting Atlanta, Georgia with Columbia, South Carolina, Charlotte, North Carolina, and Knoxville, Tennessee. With a few stops along the way, that gives formerly isolated communities between these cities much more access to the amenities of a large metropolitan area. Perhaps younger people in those areas would feel less of a cultural need to move away if a tertiary or secondary city was easily and cheaply accessible without a car on any particular weekend and for a good price. I think we need to invest far more in public education and teacher pay so that a child can get an excellent education anywhere in the country. And a family doesn't have to factor in the quality of a school system when deciding where to live. I think that would reduce the geographic concentration of highly educated and highly compensated families. And maybe the combination of quality local education, you know, maybe free community college, and up-to-date infrastructure giving local businesses the talent and high internet speeds, for example, allows those businesses to bring their communities with them in their success. Then the gap between urban and rural areas might be narrowed at least somewhat, and so too might the gap in access to care. Um, I mean, right, this is just kind of my thoughts. Um, and I think it's important especially to think about these things in the lens of, uh, in the lens of policy because policy does and will shape all aspects of dentistry in the future. I mean, we have a lot of things that potentially can completely change the industry. Um, and the point of this podcast is really to expose you guys to kind of big picture things and understand the large forces and the trends and not just understand those trends, but, but how, how they're affected. You know, um, we don't know the future if we did, or if anyone did, that person would be very rich. Um, but we do know that there are, for example, five possibilities, you know, five paths, for example, that any particular industry can take. And we can examine each of those and say, well, this particular path is probably most likely if this happens, you know, or just understanding <clears throat> what what changes may, you know, nudge an industry in a certain direction or the country in a certain direction, understanding these trends of urbanization and, uh, you know, increasing geographic concentration of educated people and bifurcation of our, our cultures. 
you know, kind of like with the AI episode, I, I presented these trends to you. I said, here's how these things work at a basic level. And here's potentially how they can be used in the future. You know, I'm not saying this is what's going to happen necessarily, but here's how things are moving and here's how things will turn out if they don't change. And that's, that's all I'm trying to do, you know, especially in this conclusion of proposing these kind of uh, policy, um, policy changes or increasing investments in certain areas. Um, let me know if this resonates with you or if you think I'm missing something. If you disagree completely, if you think I'm crazy, I, seriously, I'd love to hear from you. Um, email me at brandon at howdentistsgetpaid.com. Thanks, everyone. See you in two weeks. I do want to thank eAssist for allowing this podcast to happen, for sponsoring the podcast. Um, if you're looking for outsourced dental billing, eAssist is the number one outsourced dental billing provider. You can increase your income by outsourcing your billing, taking the pain out of getting paid. There are no software changes needed. They don't get paid unless you get paid. They help your staff. They don't replace your staff. And there are no long-term contracts. It's less stress, more peace of mind. You know, I work with them. They help with this podcast. Uh, they're all great people. And I can guarantee you're not going to regret working with them yourself. Go to dentalbilling.com for more info. Thank you.